Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at the Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Ginny Roth, the National Practice Lead for Government Relations at Crestview Strategies, a leading conservative thinker and political strategist, the former Director of Communications for Pierre Paglia's leadership campaign, and fortunate for us, an occasional contributor to the Hub. I asked Ginny to join me to talk a bit about the state of Canadian conservatism as we head into 2023, but also to get her perspective on some broader trends within the world of Anglo-American conservatism and their possible implications for Canadian policy and politics. I should just say that while we'll spend a good part of our conversation focused on big C and small C conservatism, I think it's a discussion that will be of interest for anyone who follows Canadian policy and politics, regardless of their own values or preferences. Ginny, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. I thought we'd start with the Conservative Party of Canada. I mentioned that you were involved in Pierre Polyev's leadership campaign. Ostensibly, that gave you a unique window into him, the way he thinks about politics, and the direction he's going to lead the party. Let me open up things with a general question. Has anything surprised you since he took over in terms of the way he's led the party, the issues he's taken on, or the way that he's communicated with Canadians? Um, I don't know that I would say that anything has surprised me. I think, um, you know, when you're on a campaign, there's a fixed period of time. It's usually pretty short, although this leadership was longer. Um, and you are trying to get as much of people's time and attention as possible. And the factor that people need to remember when they observe the success of uh, Mr. Polyev as a leader of the opposition is that he now faces a bit of a marathon. If you If you believe what people prognosticate about what the next election will be. Um, I mean, it could be years. And you cannot just burn all the gas in your tank in that period. And so I think one of his biggest strategic questions is, to what extent do you try to develop your brand and your party's brand on issues with voters? To what extent do you try to harm your opponent's brands? And to what extent do you use the resources available to you, both idea resources and you know, hard money and time resources to do that? And how much do you have to conserve? And it's the kind of thing that not a lot of people factor in because they think, oh, I haven't seen the guy in a few days or, you know, what's he up to? Um, and I think that is one of the biggest strategic questions that people have to remember. Uh, and so what we have seen of him, I've been really pleased to see him continue to focus on the economy as a core pillar of uh, his value proposition and the conservative value proposition to voters that we know him to be very strong on when it comes to inflation and cost of living. Um, but I'm also pleased to see him explore some new areas like uh, crime and addiction and mental health that we know um, Canadians are starting to care more about, or at least anecdotally, it seems like uh, they're becoming hotter issues. One thing that has been notable over this transition period 
is that some polling suggests that his resonance with young people has persisted. Let me ask a two-part question, Ginny. One, what do you attribute that to? And two, how can he bring expression to a policy agenda rooted in the interests and needs of younger voters and ultimately get them to vote in numbers that are meaningful? In other words, is there a conservative equivalent to legalizing marijuana? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, it's hard to parse his appeal to young people because people want to say that it's either style or substance. And I think it's both. Um, I think stylistically, um, he has an incredible, uh, incredible ability to communicate with people about complicated issues in a way that does not dumb them down, but that speaks in sort of real, concrete, approachable, current language. Um, he does that uh, via current media, uh, like namely online, via social media. Um, and on, in terms of the issue set, he's talking about issues that matter to people who are under the age of 45 in a way that very few politicians have. You're right. I think uh, cannabis legalization was an issue that the liberals were able to leverage, um, uh, particularly in the 2015 election, to great success with young people. Um, but we also know that if you pursue this uh, going after young people superficially, it can fail, right? So, you know, there were probably 10 different features written on Jagmeet Singh's success using TikTok in the lead up to the last few elections. And we rarely saw it manifest in meaningful turnout among young people uh, voting NDP. And so I think there has to be a feeling that when the rubber hits the road, there's a reason for a first time voter who's 27 to show up to the ballot box and actually cast their ballot. Um, what I think the Pierre has proven is that despite uh, what many elites in our media have claimed, there's no uh, barrier to those people saying they'll vote conservative. Um, many of them bought memberships and voted for him in a conservative leadership. So it's not, I don't think there, the, the, I don't think there's any truth to this idea that the conservative brand is inherently toxic with young people. The question is what will motivate them. And housing is sort of like the most obvious issue that um, political leaders have avoided for years because I think they felt like it was a choice between boomers who have equity in their homes and young people who can't afford homes. And um, I think the sort of bravery of, of Polyev to say, no, there's just a right side of this issue, which is like pointing out the deep inequity uh, in intergenerational wealth and success and figuring out what we can do for young people to change that. And I think he's been pleasantly, I think we've all been pleasantly surprised to see that actually a lot of those boomers have their kids living in their basements and don't want them there anymore. So on the issue side, if he can keep talking about housing and maybe even find a few new issue areas that affect young people who just want to do what people were able to do a few generations ago, buy a house, start a family, and do so in a safe um, way, he'll have some real traction going into the next election. We're speaking on Friday, January 13th. This week at The Hub, we ran a really excellent article by our editor-in-chief, Stuart Thompson, that sought to unpack Polyev's promise to defund the CBC. There are a range of options to operationalize this policy promise, from reducing it, CBC's public appropriation to essentially winding down the organization by statute. I won't ask you to break any confidences, but do you have any sense of how him and his team will think about this issue, including the politics of the CBC? Yeah, so I would start by saying that I think this is one of those issues that 
part of the reason that Polyev was so successful in the conservative leadership is that he ran on conservative issues <laughs> that, you know, people would describe traditionally as like red meat conservative issues, the base cares about it, conservative members care about it. That is true. The difference between him and, and some past leaders is that his plan was not to uh, make those commitments and then sort of ease out of them or move on or hope people forget. It's to say there'll just be some of many issues that he'll confront um, and that some of those other issues might have much broader appeal, like, say, housing or inflation or what have you. Um, but that it, even if the if, even if defunding the CBC has a narrow appeal to conservatives, it's still important and he's still going to do it. Right. And I think people have a real sense that that's part of his character and brand. And I think he th th finds it really important. Um, and, and that means he has to keep that promise. And so. Um, I think he'll approach it the way he approaches all kinds of thorny policy issues, which is just talk to a bunch of experts and get a bunch of advice um, and assess uh, uh, the different um, uh, costs involved in each, the difficulties, um, and and uh, all in keeping with the spirit of the original commitment. And I think that the spirit of the original commitment is really, really clear, defund the CBC. Um, and I think when people think about the, about the CBC, they think about like a bloated, um, publicly funded entity that is like pseudo commercial, right? So it does not do a great job of some of the like high end content that maybe consumers wouldn't fund, like they maybe see from PBS or, or the BBC, but also that doesn't do a great job of appealing to consumers and, and following a, a, a market motive. And so um, there are different paths he could take. Either way, I think, yeah, people need to feel, he knows that people need to feel like he's committing to the promise. And so any policy manifestation, I think, will allow him to say, yeah, I defunded the CBC. Uh, let me ask one final question about Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives, and then we'll move on to some of the, the bigger global issues that I mentioned in the introduction. Assuming we're not going to have an election in 2023, what are some benchmarks for success for Polyev and the conservatives over the coming year? Besides polling about, say, voting intentions, how should we assess if the party is moving in the right direction? So I think on the issues and policy side, we'll know that he's been successful over the course of the last few months and, and, and the next year if the issues that he's talking about are the issues that become the seminal issues that everyone's talking about. He clearly did that on inflation. You know, Sean, you and I've talked before about just how early it was that he was ringing alarm bells about inflation way, way before everyone else, like almost two years ago now. And, and basically no one else was. And that gave him incredible credibility to be able to sort of say, not in a certain way, but I told you so. Like, I'm the expert on this. And the other people who told you this wouldn't happen were wrong. And so if inflation gets worse, I'm the guy you should listen to. And that's what happened. And, and so I think his credibility, his credibility on that has been incredible. To watch, for instance, the video he put out that he shot in Vancouver about how uh, things in Canada seem broken. How is it that we can let people live in, in squalor and tent cities and suffer from addiction and not bring a common sense of approach to try to treat that? Um, and then he gets sort of mocked, uh, frankly, in a way I think that is similar to the way he was mocked when he called out inflation early on by elites who are so-called experts, uh, oftentimes with designations after their names, but who um, just sound really out of touch, I think, to regular people. I can see that following a similar track, right, where if you live in a big city, uh, you increasingly feel less safe in your neighborhood. You increasingly see people struggling and suffering that you think need to be helped with treatment, not um, enabled. Uh, and so all of a sudden that starts to, to resonate. And then months later, people go, wow, he's been talking about this for months. Um, and so if he continues to have string of, a string of issues like that, where he sort of 
catches an issue early on and then, you know, really owns it, I think that'll be a sign of success. And then on the practical side, look, this is the stuff that's less sexy. He's got to get candidates, nom- <laughs> candidates nominated. Uh, he's got to raise money. And he's got to get a caucus uh, rolling in the same direction on all these issues and getting the fundamentals right and keep his membership engaged so that there's a ground campaign in place that uh, that can dominate and, and sort of carry the message on the ground in the next election. Just a ton of insights there, Jenny. Thanks for sharing them with me and our listeners. You're also a close observer of Anglo-American conservatism including efforts to reconceptualize the conservative policy agenda to both better reflect contemporary issues, as well as what's sometimes referred to as the, quote, political realignment, uh, the idea that there are shifts occurring within the electorate in terms of who typically votes for the left and who votes for the right. Uh, Do you want to reflect on those trends and whether there's evidence that they're also occurring in Canada? Yeah, for sure. You, you, you and I have talked about this before, Sean. I think the follow-on to uh, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump meant that um, both of which were sort of like hyper-political moments with campaign moments um, and people got voted out and referenda were lost or won, depending on what side you were on. And they weren't led by intellectual movements. The intellectual movements have now sort of come in behind those political, geopolitical events to try to both explain them and sort of figure out a path forward. And I think that's really positive because if you don't have those intellectual movements, you risk uh, simplifying, oversimplifying, and overinterpreting um, what those events can look like. And so I, I, I follow those intellectual movements because I think I want to try to understand what's going on. Interestingly, like Stephen Harper was kind of at the, the forefront of this when he put out his book after after leaving government as prime minister, trying to understand the what, what impact populism would have on right of center thinking. And um, watching that evolve since then, I mean, he he was quite prescient in that he was not going so far in the direction of a realignment as to say, free trade is a failure. <laughs> We've got to start over. We've got to abandon all sort of um, uh, conservative uh, sympathy for, for pure free markets. Um, but he did say that sort of 1990s period of purely economic right-wing thinking was maybe missing some things and that uh and that the conservatives would need to do some serious thinking about how to how to address issues following that and that thinking has gotten more sophisticated over time so there are some thinkers in the u.s um, i look to who are trying to basically say was there anything to what donald trump was doing in terms of prioritizing blue-collar workers and their interests in the u.s um thinking about a bit of a culture fight where conservatives have kind of not argued for the kind of you know life they want, want people to live for a long time so they start doing that outside of the context of an economic argument um and and now that we're we're beyond boris johnson in the uk you've got british thinkers who've been trying to explain that as well um in canada we've we had less of that dynamic because we haven't had this breakthrough political moment where a populist wave has elected a new leader or a new government um, but I do think you see an evolution in the types of things that Pierre Polyev is talking about, for instance, where it's not just pure economics. There's also a cultural component. Um, and for us, I think uh, COVID and the government's reaction to COVID created a bit of a space for Canada to start to have a conversation about um, our, our centrist elites, uh, maybe a bit misguided in speaking to people and what they care about when their only focus is on sort of small L liberal economics. 
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. That's a good segue to my next question, Jenny. One idea that uh, manifests itself in a lot of this intra-conservative discussion around the Anglosphere is the rise of so-called woke politics and the notion that it represents a political opportunity for the right. That besides hardcore progressives, the left's emphasis on identity, race, and gender is actually a turnoff. One proof point may be Glenn Youngkin's gubernatorial win in Virginia, Another may be the endorsement by several trade unions of Doug Ford's Ontario Progressive Conservative Party in last year's provincial election campaign. What's your sense? Should conservatives be leaning into some of these cultural issues? And how do they do it in a way that doesn't succumb to the perception that they're indifferent or hostile to the experiences of racial or sexual minorities? Yeah, I think this is a good question. And because I think there's a lot of danger here. Um, I am someone who thinks that conservative political parties and leaders should speak to people not just about the economy, but about the culture, their lives, what matters to people, how how to live, how to live a good life and how the government can either get out of the way or support that. But it's fraught, right? And, and conservatives do have a past of, um, sometimes being, uh, offside of, of evolving public opinion. Um, and, uh, and I think if you're a, if you're a conservative like me, you want to be a conservative that presents, uh, positive alternatives, but also that can win elections. Cause otherwise, what's the point? Um, and so it's a good question. One of the, one of the, um, guidelines I use for myself is, um, there's a, a thinker who's sort of prominent on Twitter. Um, I think he's a PhD student at Cambridge, and he's coined the term luxury beliefs. And uh, he uses it to describe what's happened with some of our elite institutions, um, particularly university campuses, where the left talks in language that seems to be totally out of touch with everyday people. Um, and not just language, but they describe their beliefs. Um, you know, one of the classic beliefs is to get back to the crime issue that you can you can argue for defunding the police if you live in a really safe neighborhood, right? If you live in a crime-ridden neighborhood, you can't argue to, to defund the police because you'd feel unsafe. And so it's a luxury belief. And, and using um, language that's totally inaccessible to everyday working class people um, kind of speaks to that as well. And so it's the belief itself and the language that you use. And I think that's a really good tool uh, for conservatives when we think about what kind of um, woke issues we want to talk about um, or bring to the fore. It's not, uh, it's not about challenging core liberties and rights and beliefs. It's about saying our elite institutions have totally lost touch uh, on big matters of public policy. You're seeing a lot of this with education curriculum and education priorities in the U.S. too, with what everyday, regular, non-ideological people want and prioritize. And I think that's a good, a good guideline for conservatives when we think about what issues we should tackle. You've alluded a couple of times, Jenny, to some thinkers and intellectuals who are influencing the way you yourself think about these issues as conservative politicians across the country, including Polyev, as well as provincial leaders themselves think about these broader trends. 
Are there conservative politicians across the Anglosphere that you think are striking these balances? Are there possible models that Canadian conservatives ought to be studying? It's tough because Canada is not the same. Um, and we're not going through the same political moment as, for for example, the United States or, or the UK. Glenn Youngkin's a good example of someone who I do think struck a balance. He you know, originally was thought of, I think, as a relatively establishment Republican, uh, but he surrounded himself with people and issues that really got to uh, specifically in the education uh, issue set, uh, much more current cutting edge issues that some of the more America first type uh, Republicans might be interested in and that regular people cared about. You know, Ron DeSantis, uh, I think, is is speaking about an issue set that is less relevant to Canada. We don't have um, a border with Mexico. We don't, you know, there are a lot of circumstances that we're not in. But his ability to um, cut to the core of a issue that is hyper resonant for people in a moment and then deliver on a public policy commitment and announce it <laughs> in a political rollout uh, that is picked up in the news and covered widely is just like really exceptional um, um, uh, uh, behavior for, for an elected official. And he comes off appearing to be a winner, right? So even if he picks some issues that turn some people off here and there on the margins, he seems like the guy that if you want to get things done um, and if you want to uh, fight back against woke culture or, um, or, or, or frankly, you want a like well-run state, um, that's not going to trample on freedoms and that's going to, uh, uh, have a reasonable budget <laughs> that he's the guy to do it. And so his style, uh, the way he uses social media, um, the way he's combative, but still substantive, I think it's a really good model for Canadian politicians on the right want to think about being relevant to people, um, even if the issue sets a little bit different. One thing that I really admire about you is that you're a highly successful professional woman who lives in Toronto, where it would be socially acceptable to say that you're a conservative, especially if you said, I'm a conservative on economic and fiscal issues, but I'm a social liberal, which is basically a signal on a whole host of contentious cultural issues. But you don't. We did a podcast episode together in the aftermath of the conservative leadership race for the Public Policy Forum, which is probably not your typical audience. And you said, I'm a social conservative. Um, but Ginny, one gets the sense that the social conservative wing of Canadian conservatism isn't in a particularly strong position these days. I was struck, for instance, that in the last leadership campaign that Polyev ultimately won, there wasn't much of a groundswell on key social conservative issues as there had been in previous races. What's your sense, notwithstanding your own preferences and values, does social conservatism have any prospects of influencing the political agenda? It's a good question. Um, I think I partially lean into describing myself that way because I have a, um, a tacit strategy, <laughs> which is to demarginalize social conservatism. Because I actually think in in practice, most of the conservatives I know, while they may start by saying what is acceptable in Toronto cocktail parties, which is that you're um, a fiscal conservative, not a social conservative, they actually are social conservatives. The issues that matter to them are not just balancing budgets. They're um, defunding the CBC. <laughs> they are. They might be gun rights. They might be that they want to be able to buy a house and they want their peers to buy a house because they want their peers to have big families and more kids. Um, all these things, I think, are, are socially conservative. They're certainly not just purely fiscally conservative. Um, and, and these issues are inter interconnected. And so um, when the party is weaker in Canada, I think it's uh, it's factioned. And 
social conservatives tend to hone in on one or two issue areas that are really important to them. Um, you know, for years it was gay marriage and then, um, but it's been, it's been abortion, um, or matters of life. And actually, uh, one of the issues I think a lot of people care about right now is euthanasia or as it's euphemistically described medical assistance and dying, um, at the other end of the spectrum of life. And, you know, you've got regular Canadians who wouldn't describe them themselves as any kind of conservative, let alone a social conservative who are deeply disturbed by the direction, uh, the government policy is taking on on that issue. And so I think part of why Polyev was so successful is that he spoke about a really broad range of issues that included culturally conservative issues, and in some cases, socially conservative issues, um, but in a in, in language that appealed to regular people. Um, and so I, I have a I have a desire to do that in my, you know, how I talk about myself and, um, and how I speak to my peers. And I think the conservative movement will be more successful if it creates room for that. Let me take up that point directly. One way that I've observed you trying to insert some of these ideas into our politics is by aiming to retake the language and ideas of feminism. There are similarly some high-profile female conservative intellectuals in the United States who are pushing back against the prevailing conception of feminism that's ultimately pretty one-sided, that takes for granted that the goals of feminism ought to be full freedom and autonomy for women to pursue their professional goals to, in effect, separate themselves from the patriarchal norms and institutions that have held them back. My sense from a lot of your writing and commentary is that you see the potential for a different kind of feminism. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? I think that's right. And I think there, you know, there hasn't been a label for some time on this intellectual movement. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, a couple uh, leading intellectuals in the U.S. and the U.K. have launched what they're calling um, uh, it's, it's an online um, magazine and they're calling it uh, or they're orienting it towards what they call sex realist feminism. Um, they all come at it uh, from different, in different ways. Some people come at it through the uh, uh, women in sports angle. Some people come at it through uh, the role of the mother angle. Um, but what they all have in common is a sort of uh, they're reacting to what they seem they, they perceive as um, a small L liberal approach to feminism where the only goal is to maximize the ability of women to act as GDP contributors in the market economy. And of course, that's not, uh, that doesn't come anywhere near um, speaking to the actual real wants and needs of women, or frankly, the, the real wants and needs of men. <laughs> um, and, the, and, and in many cases, they're shared children. And so um, they're trying to articulate a view of feminism, which um, um, it, puts uh, the equality of the sexes at the forefront, but also is very realistic about the differences between the sexes, both the physical differences and the emotional differences, and what those what that means about how public policy should develop, should create um, an environment, a culture, an economy, where everyone can sort of live their best lives and, um, and, and fulfill a purpose driven life um, for women. Um, although also for men, I mean, I also like to talk about this issue from the perspective of we have institutions that are not well set up to have boys and men succeed um, in our economy and our culture. And and talking about it in those terms and those terms of sex differences and, and family, I think it's really positive and uh, creates all sorts of room for interesting public policy discussions. Just in parentheses, for those listeners interested in Janie's comments about our economic and social 
conditions for men. I'd, I'd encourage you to listen to our previous episode of Hub Dialogues with the American scholar Richard Reeves about his uh, highly regarded book of boys and men. Ginny, you mentioned the role of public policy here. Um, let me ask you, how might your conception of a conservative feminism manifest itself in public policy? What might be some ways in which Polyev or conservative premiers, for that matter, might nod to this burgeoning movement through the use of public policy? It's a good question. There are a few. There's one note, one note in, in Reeves' book that you just mentioned when it comes to boys, which I thought, but I'm contemplating myself. I have a two-year-old son, um, and he has some traditionally boy sex characteristics, namely his attention span, which is very short, and envisioning him in starting kindergarten at the same time as, say, um, his four-year-old female counterparts uh, is a bit is a bit concerning. I don't know that he could sit sit still um, through a full day of sort of classroom activity. And Reeves actually recommends that some jurisdictions consider giving the boys the option to stay back a year because we know that on average, and this is of course not true in every individual case, but on average, boys tend to develop a little more slowly when it comes to things like their attention span uh, early in life, and that you might get way better outcomes on the back end coming out of elementary and, and high school if you did that. Um, so there, there are little things like that that speak to sort of real sex differences that can make a big difference. When it comes to women, I sometimes worry more about our existing public policy and where we have inadvertent penalties. Um, I think, you know, for instance, we have to avoid uh, marriage and childbearing penalties at all costs, even when they're hidden um, in the tax code, in um, how we fund programs, that kind of thing. If we say we think it's good for people to form families early and stay together as families, which we just we know that success sequence results in better outcomes for everyone. Um, we shouldn't have public policy penalties for them. Um, and I think we should prioritize choice um, and not presume what, what choice looks like. So a child care model, for instance, that's a lot more like the version Stephen Harper came up with, um, doubling down on the child benefit model that gives parents money back um, when they have kids, and frankly, when they have more kids, um, to create the circumstances at home that they think are best for their family and more conducive to them growing their families is, I think, far superior to a sort of universal one-size-fits-all childcare model that I think doesn't reach people um, uh, in, in the environments that they want to be in. Um, anything we can do to, we know the data tells us people are having fewer kids than they want. Certainly women are having fewer children that they'd like to have. They'd like to have more. They tell pollsters, but for whatever reason, they're not. So investigating through a public policy lens how we can remove those barriers and do more to support that, it's tough, but I think it's worth pursuing. Final question. As a close observer and even occasional practitioner of politics, what are some of the issues, topics, or developments that you're following for the current year? Is it the Alberta election and its implications for Canadian conservatism? Is it the political economy consequences of an expected recession? Is it growing concerns about the Trudeau government's pretty dogmatic left-wing agenda with respect to criminal justice? What, in other words, Ginny, are the issues that you think our listeners ought to be tracking over the coming months? I think crime and its attendant um, issue set. Uh, I think I think addictions and mental health and crime all all kind of fit into the same bucket because, of course, they're interconnected. Um, I think that's one of the issues that uh, the commentary is kind of sleeping on, and the public is is living firsthand. Um, we're seeing uh, the U.S. is is a little bit ahead of us on this. Uh, you're seeing 
Um, the mayor in New York took a totally different, a Democrat uh, mayor in New York, mind you, taking a totally different approach to crime. Um, we're now in a they're now in a situation where their their subway ridership is so low because people feel so unsafe that the public transit model is becoming unsustainable. Um, and I think you see some of the early roots of that, shoots of that in, in Canada, um, in our big cities. And so I think big city policy when it comes to crime and mental health and addiction treatment is the issue to watch for this year. Uh, and there are all sorts of ways to come at it. The, the federal liberals, Justin Trudeau, have chosen to try to fight a culture war on guns that punishes um, legitimate gun owners and does absolutely nothing to tackle or beat back the crime that's arisen um, under their tenure. And the Conservatives now have a leader who's actually willing to articulate a counter message as opposed to sort of cower and hope that they don't. he doesn't have to talk about that issue. And so um, I think it'll be defining, particularly as more people you know, feel unsafe taking public transit, take their kid to school, for instance. Um, that, that becomes salient really quickly if the things we take for granted, like safety in our own community, starts to erode. Well, Ginny, we'll have to have you back later in the year to talk about that issue, uh, amongst others. Uh, Ginny Roth, National Practice Lead for Government Relations at Crestview Strategies, uh, occasional Hub contributor. Thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.